quite a comfortable a comfortable chair for I'm you. going to get comfortable, yes. Taking my pants if off. If you know it off anytime. Yeah, take it, take your <laughs> shoes off, take your pants off. I, I always do these nudes, so. Oh well, that's nice. Just bottom down though, right? Yeah, just to give you something to look at. This is a very comfortable chair. We, when we do these in the UK, we don't have comfortable chairs. Nothing in the UK is comfortable. <laughs> You've been around so long, and you can't like put a little R and D into comfy. Yeah, it's very strange. Everything's too small. I think it's because <laughs> everything's just so old. Like it, it's worked. It worked for centuries. Why change it? Why change it? Why learn from <laughs> from decades of history? Yeah. A little plant in the corner. Yeah, well, that's my tribute to Zach Galifianakis. Between one palm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we'll probably just start. Yeah. I don't see why not. I've got all sorts of things. I've got a haircut to get to. Have you? When do you need to be out here? No, I I have plenty of time. I'm kidding. But seriously, I have a good haircut. David Tennant does a podcast with... John Hamm. So, John Hamm, thank you for being here. That's me. Um, My name sounds so cool in Scottish. I think everything sounds cooler in the Scottish accent, though. Do you do a good Scottish accent? I used to think I did. I'll warm up to it. We'll get to it later. Okay. I'll lure you in, mm-hmm. wear you down, and then you can try yeah, it. Yeah. Well, I did when I would do uh, Craig Ferguson. Oh, yeah. He would, I would inevitably start talking like him. He's a nice guy. Yeah. Do, do you do a lot of accents? Have you worked in accents? Uh, I have before. I did a series for uh, Sky Arts called The Young Doctor's Notebook oh, that I had, to, I had to do some version of a British accent, which I was not excoriated for in the British press, so I felt... Slightly vindicated on that end, but uh, I don't know. I was such a uh, such a Monty Python freak when I was growing up that I just learned all of these. I had no context for them. Yeah, I just thought, oh, this is the, what the what that person sounds like. I didn't know he was a Northerner or a Southerner, right. or a Welshman or what have you. I just thought, oh, that's a that's an interesting way of talking, and I think I'm going to try to do that. So I never really studied them in earnest, other than just sort of mimicking. Your first ever acting role, I believe, was a classical English character. It sure was. Did you do that in the traditional English accent <laughs> that Winnie the do you Pooh think was he, known do you for? Think Winnie had a, had a was Winnie posh? I can't imagine. He must be. I guess he was. Well, I guess in the original books that he was envisaged that way, but I, Disney made him American. I guess. Sure. Didn't he? Yeah, he was quite American, uh, and he was sort of he was sort of like yeah. an old man. I don't. He was sort of a befuddled old man. Uh, no, I did him in, a, in the voice of a, as loud as I could, five-year-old. Uh, <laughs> so first grade is five. First yeah. grade is five years old. Yeah. Uh, kindergarten, first grade. It depends on when your birthday is. There's a whole like rigmarole they have right, to go we through. we have that too, yeah. That was my first acting job. I, we did a play. Our whole, like our whole first grade did it. But you were the poo. Only one Winnie. Yeah. Was it, was it an extensive audition process? No. In fact, I was told by my teacher that I was to play... Winnie the Pooh, because I was the only person who would stand up in front of people and be loud. So you, and to you, this day, <laughs> that is uh, pretty much done? the definition of my acting. So what was like life like as a child in St. Louis, Missouri? Was um, it rural? Was it no. industrial? It's not industrial. Where did you grow up? Glasgow? Yeah, no. just outside Glasgow. Paisley. Just outside so you grew Glasgow. up in a, a suburb? Yeah, exactly. It's a suburb, basically. Right. That's where I grew up. Uh, the city of St. Louis in the 70s was very much a big business town. It was lo- It's located right in the middle of the country. And it was a great place to, to grow up as a kid. I went to public school and 
had a bunch of friends and we all ran around, you know, we get out of school and, and sort of meet up by the, you know, by the road sign. And then we would disperse to various activities, you know, depending upon what season it was. Oh, it's football season. Oh, it's, you know, Frisbee season or, you know, basketball season, swimming, whatever it was. And, uh, and that was basically what growing up was, was just running around, being outside all day. It was a pre-video game, pre-everything, really, you know, three channels, of television and I was raised by a single mom so I kind of had free reign until my mom got home at 5 30 or whatever and you know I was allowed to stay out till the street lights came on and sun went down and you know my mom would have that time to kind of decompress after yeah. work and uh, eventually cook dinner and do homework and go to sleep and get up and do it all over again my mom and dad got divorced when I was two years old wow so we were pretty, you know, we didn't really want for anything, but I didn't really want anything. Mm. I had everything I wanted. I had a baseball glove and I had tennis shoes and whatever I didn't have somebody else in the neighborhood did, then we could share it. I had a bicycle, you know, like your basics as a kid. I, I didn't really want for anything. And you would all, as kids, you would just roam around. You'd be oh, out all the time. a pack, be, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like a crazy pack. That feels like that's changed within our lifetime. Well, I think not... people are so terrified. I think, you know... There have always been bad guys, right? There's always been the creepy sure. people on the fringe. But what the internet has done is made those boogeymen, move them from the fringe into the front and center, and has suggested that everybody's like that, or more people than you think, or, mm-hmm. oh, don't trust anybody. You can only trust yourself or your people or whatever. And it's kind of like, well, that's not true at all. You know, you don't need to be a, a total gullible fool but mostly people are good I, I fully believe that i think that most people are kind most people don't have you know horrible prejudice and whatever or if they do when presented with it face to face it kind of melts away because it's so much easier to do that in a anonymous online kind of space and spew vitriol and hatred and all this nonsense when you don't have to own up to it and, and you don't have to be you know, look at it in the face or have somebody look you in the face while you do it. It's mm-hmm. much more difficult. Do you think kids in St. Louis now could still be having that lifestyle but probably don't? Well, I think also there's so many more things to do that are yeah. entertaining. You know, yeah. I think probably kids get all get together now and go play Fortnite yeah. for five hours instead of going and running around and playing kickball. I mean, I probably would too, honestly. Like, I hear it's a pretty fun game. I've never yeah, played sure. it, but, I mean, yeah, but at least it's communal, kind yeah. of. Yeah. But I think that you know, yeah, I think that that's, that's just the culture has shifted into more indoor games than outdoor games. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say it's better or worse or anything. I loved the way I grew up. I still love being outside. That's why I live in L.A. You mm-hmm. know, you can be outside for, for 10 months out of the year. It never rains. I can walk outside my house and in five steps I'm in Griffith Park and I can walk and I can walk for 75 minutes mm-hmm. and, you know, do a whole loop and come back to my house and... I feel great. So you look back on that childhood as a very happy time, as a very as yeah. A for the most time. part, like any child, mm. you know, it wasn't without its difficulties, but but for the most part, yeah. I mean, but your mom got sick when you were very young. She did. She was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer at the age of thirty-five when I was nine years old. Yikes! And you know, again in the seventies, there was there was not a lot of screening and the things that we have now. Uh, so had she gone through that 
um, experience in the 2000s, she most likely would have lived because it probably would have been caught much earlier. Um, but by the time they got to it, it had spread throughout her, you know, her major organs in her, in her abdomen. So the liver and the stomach and the, and the gallbladder and, you know, everything in there was, was riddled with cancer. And so she passed away fairly quickly over the course of about three weeks. She went from diagnosis to death and that was pretty rough to watch. And at um, nine, how aware are you of what's going on? Uh, not very. Uh, and again, it's... Are you being told or is it being kept from Well, you? you're being you're being kind of told in a very indirect way. And so, you again, at nine, you're kind of like, why is everybody around me losing their shit and crying? Mm. And mm. why are all the adults who are supposed to be very put together and running the show, why are they losing it? And so you have no kind of concept of it. You think, oh, something bad must be happening. Mm. But it's certainly not the go-to thing you think of. Then it happens, and it's devastating, and it's permanent. And it's your fir- it's, it was my first experience with anything permanent at nine. You don't think yeah. anything's permanent. I was given a book. What to right. do, the title was What to Do When a Parent Dies. Yikes. Uh, which I read, and I was like, okay, I, I read it. That process ended up taking probably the next 20 years of my life of course uh whether i knew it or not yeah that's why i've you know i went into therapy at a certain point and i'm still in it it's like helpful yeah uh you know we don't directly talk about my mom very much anymore but i still can recognize that you know the, the fear of abandonment and the fear of certain things are are tied into to that and and you kind of just clock it and and try to be aware of it and try to understand that okay that's what that's coming from so that's either irrational or or something that I, it, it's emotional so I should probably just put a pin in it and realize that that's not necessarily a, a thing that I need to deal with right now I can I can worry about that later. Were you aware enough of what was going on to be scared? The, the only thing I found scary was the adults' reaction to it. Right. Because it was so out of... no. I'd never seen all the adults in my life kind of not uh, in charge of their own, you know, emotions right. and selves. I just remember looking around the waiting room and my grandfather, who was a Navy man, like World War II veteran, like, was by himself, like, looking out the window, like, sobbing. I could oh. tell from the back, you know, because his shoulders were kind of doing this. And I was like, well, I've never seen that happen. And I never saw it again in my life. Uh, and my grandmother had a, you know, a, a tissue to her, her, to her nose or her eyes or something. And my aunts were all in the corner kind of huddled and talking about something. I was like, what is happening here? So it was just kind of discomforting, but it wasn't, so it wasn't really scary. It was just kind of like, what's happening? What's going on here? And of course then no one was really honest or felt like they could be honest because it's, oh, he's just a little kid. He doesn't know what's going on. Hmm. Kids know more than you think. Yeah, you know, sure. You realize that. So you then went and lived with your dad. I lived with my dad until I was, uh, until I went off to college. Yeah. So he um, got the difficult teenage years, did he? Were they difficult yes teenage and years? Yes, no. You know, I was. Uh, I mean, I, I was a. I was kind of a, a of a of an outlier as a teenager, I think, because I lived with my dad, but my dad lived in his childhood home, so he basically had moved back in with his mom. So I lived with my father and my grandmother in my grandmother's old house, which was this massive kind of old place uh, in North County, St. Louis. And uh, we had two and a half acres of, of, of land in the back, which was great for me. But I, I ended up going to a, a school that was, was very far away. This is when I transferred into a private school. 
in seventh grade. And, and so none of my friends live, live nearby. So that whole kind of communal friend thing kind of went away. And I had to like, but I was also like 13, 14, getting, getting old enough to be like, oh, I want to hang out with my friends at different venues. I was an athlete in school. I had a lot of after school stuff, whether it was theater or what have you. So I was just basically at work the whole time. Right. I mean, I was working the whole time. I found I found my way to get into trouble as as much as I could. But you know, I was a very very diligent student and a very very diligent athlete as well. And I also knew that this particular school was the place that my mom wanted me, where she wanted me to go. Right. So I felt very much beholden to that kind of promise. Right. Of not wasting the opportunity. So you're doing a lot of sport, you're doing a bit of theater, but you're still not thinking, I'm going to be an actor. No, I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I did not want to worry about money because, you know, as, as comfortable as we were, we, money was always a, a looming something somewhere. And I knew enough people in my life who seemingly didn't have that problem. And I thought, well, I'd, I'd rather not have that problem than have that problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it took me a long, <laughs> long time to get to the place where I didn't have to worry about that. But, well, you're um, electing to become an actor is not a surefire way of no, not having to worry not. about money. <laughs> yeah, there's way better ways to make a living. Yeah, and and eventually I had gone to the University of Texas and on a scholarship because I had really crazy grades in high school and crazy test scores. I was like, oh really? You were a, on the very were, very right? high end of that whole spectrum. And then just proceeded to party my way out of that nonsense. Freshman year in college was like I was off the leash, oh, basically. Really? So you'd been quite a you'd been quite a good boy at high school, Absolutely. and then you went crazy. Well, yeah, because I didn't need to do all the all the classes I was taking. I basically had already taken in high school, right. so it was just like this is ridiculous. And, I know, and I know if you from what you're saying, it was all quite easy for you. Mm -hmm. I guess. So then, yeah, I got I was able to get into a local college. I wanted to continue my education. I wanted to stay in, in with some kind of sense of stability and organization in my life and a schedule. Mm -hmm. So I got back up to speed from an educational standpoint and then transferred to the big university in Columbia, Missouri. And that's when I literally opened the, the student newspaper one day and they were, there was a thing in the newspaper that said, Midsummer Night's Dream, come audition. It's a professional outfit out of Chicago. They're casting the, the four young lovers as students. And I looked at my roommate, who was a friend of mine from St. Louis, and I was like, I'm going to do this. He's like, yeah, you should. You're good. And I took the little paper and I figured out where it was and I signed in and I got the part. Which Ly one? Which Ly the love? Lysander. Excellent. It's, and it was a fully professional production. I mean, we didn't get paid, but uh, right. it, they were pros, the standard apparently. Rules. Right. But it was beautiful. It was a beautiful production and it was, you know, for, for you know, a mid-Missouri regional theater production of Shakespeare, it was, it was pretty great. Yeah. And it was, that I think was when I was like, oh, oh, okay, I could probably do this. I did about 15 plays in two years, two and a half years. We, uh, I learned a lot. I met a lot of great people, uh, very talented people. I got to learn so much, and that was kind of my right, that was your conservatory yeah. uh, you know, education. But it was fun. It was also really fun. And I think for the first time in my life, I started having, not in my life, but the first time in a long time, coming out of kind of a depressive fog and being like, oh, joy and and life and love and fun and creativity and and feedback, positive feedback. I was like, oh, this is something. This mm -hmm. is something. Uh, 
And then, you know, I graduated and it was kind of like, now what? In the States, you have two places to go, really, New York and L.A., if you want to be an actor. Chicago is mm. kind of a distant third. But you don't. You go home first. Well, that's that's what I did. I went home first. Um, We're always thinking, I'll get round to it? or Well, thinking I didn't have any money. Right. So I was like, okay, I, I have to go... I have to go home and get a job. I have to. I have to make some money. But you work as a teacher in your old yeah, high school. I was a. I was a waiter for about a year, and I made great money, and I was able to get my own place. And then I, uh, I had petitioned my old school, uh, and the acting teacher at my old school, who was my acting teacher my senior year. I said, you know, since you've come to the school over the last four years or so, the the, the program has been wildly popular. Everybody wants to take your class. You're overworked. Why don't you hire essentially like a junior professor and I can I can teach the class. I just got out of college. I did all this stuff, you know, improv and whatnot. I, and, and whatever I don't know, you can hand me the lesson plan and I can go through it and teach these kids. And I was 24 years old. I was like, I can do anything. Yeah. And so the headmaster's like, great, you know, you're cheap at the very least. Like we can afford you. And I, and I was like, cool, this will be great. And then I had a, a, a ninth through 11th grade scene study class, and that was the class that Ellie Kemper uh, was in. Um, she was you everything. Uh, she, she was f- fantastic, even as a 15-year-old ninth grader in a class where she was on the younger end of. Right. So she was probably very daunted by the older girls who were very good and boys. Were and you good? I made, were you a good teacher? I thought so. I mean, I think the feedback was, was all pretty strong. And, and in fact, they wanted to bring me back for a second year, so I guess I was okay. Um, and I know I liked it, but I I remember turning 25, I guess, and thinking like, okay, quarter century, it's time to go. Like, I need to try this if I'm going to try it. Yeah. And not that I felt old, but I just felt like I know if I stay here and do this another year, I'll be here for 20 years. Yeah. At least. And I don't I don't want to be here for 20 years. Yeah. And think, whoa, what might have been? Were there any precedents? I mean, did you know any actors? Did you? I didn't know really anybody. I knew one person that I knew was in L.A., Paul Rudd. Paul was the college roommate of a family friend of mine. And I had met him. I was 17. He was 18 or 19. Or I was 18. He was 19. He's a year older than me or two years older than me. And I knew he had gone out there because we had become friends through this mutual friend. And so I knew one person. And I had an aunt and uncle that lived out here too, so I, I had a place to stay, and I had a, a, a one person to call. Right. So that's all I really thought I needed. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And then I I pointed my car west, and I had literally one hundred fifty dollars in cash, a couple of credit cards that I wasn't sure would go through or not. And it was like, okay, this is it. So I went on a million auditions, and I got a million no's. Um, literally nothing. Well, I would get to a certain point, and then they wouldn't okay. cast me. And it was, again, it was in the, the 90s, like 95, 96. I, would, I remember being in rooms with Bradley Cooper, with Heath Ledger. Uh, there was a show on Fox that came down to me and Heath Ledger. Right. Heath Ledger got it. Uh, and I remember thinking, like, who's going to hire an Australian? <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, turns out... Yeah, a lot of people want to hire. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, I just uh, that those couple years were, were were me learning what I didn't know about this business, which was a lot. Yeah, and you know, everyone's got to go through it. You, you, if you don't, you're lucky. 
Sure. You know, if, 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 if you catch lightning in a bottle and you get a gig and you happen to be good in it and it, and, and it all works out, that's luck. Mm. And you need some of that, obviously. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. It took me three years of almost, almost, almost. I mean, I lost, I lost jobs to John Favreau. Right. Which I, and John's a friend of mine now. I see him all the time. I'm like, you know, you beat me out for a part, right? And he's like, what? I didn't even, he didn't even remember it. I'm like, yeah, buddy. You keep going. You don't get, I mean, you must have got discouraged. You get discouraged. But, you know, I think at a certain point, because you know enough people and you've been around long enough, you're like, oh, everybody, this is everybody's experience. You, you hear no way, way more than you hear yes. How bleak do you get, though? The bleakest I probably got was right before I got Mad Men. And I'd been working a lot before that. But I had tested for seven pilots. And by tested, I mean gotten to the very, very, very end. Yeah. Signed the contract. Signed the line. contract, went to the network, blah, blah, blah. I had tested for seven pilots. One, let's say, infamous television studio had at a certain point told my manager to stop sending me in because I'll never be a television star. Wow. Um, and I was like, how bad could I have been? Like, I've, I've, I was clearly not terrible. I got yeah. this far. But that's where I was when Mad Men came around. Mad Men came around very, very, very late in the pilot season. Uh Everyone that wanted jobs had jobs already. And this was like kind of the last one circling the drain. And I thought it was the best pilot I'd ever read. So you're – but you start working and it's all beginning to clock along. And then in your mid-30s, you read the script for Mad Men. Yeah. For somebody that had the credits that I had, I started at the very, very, very bottom of the list. In fact, I had to pre-read, and I think, I don't know if you even remember what that is, but that's like reading for the casting director before you even meet anybody. Before you even meet any of the grown-ups. Right. And because the casting directors were out of New York and they didn't know who I was. And so I climbed that ladder fairly quickly, but I had eight auditions at least, seven, eight auditions for Mad Men. Eight? Yeah. And every time it's like a... Do or die... And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I know what this is. This is me being great until they find the movie star that they're going to put in this part. Yeah, yeah. But fortunately for me, A, Matt Weiner fell in love with me, basically. He really liked me. And B, it was so late in the pilot season that all the movie stars were gone. Right. Or all the TV stars were gone. This right. was in an era when movie stars didn't do TV. Uh-huh. Now it would have been a totally, you know, it probably could have got George Clooney to play. You know, yeah. it's like. Through all these hoops, are you managing to remain focused? Are you managing to remain calm? Or, or are the stakes, um, does it get. Do I, you... I, I think I think I was. 
I remember sitting in a bar with my friend and saying, like, I don't I never say this, but I really, really want this job. And he goes, There's nothing wrong with saying that. I go, Yeah, but I'm jinxing it. Wait, well, he goes, No. He goes, So go get it. Uh and I was like, You're right. I mean, why not me? And that was when I first started thinking, like, why not me? Yeah. I'm I'm as good as anybody. I'm like, why not me? I'm good for this role. And was it was it the was the quality of the script such that you were thinking this is this is a life changer if I get this one? No, it was it was a great script, but it was on a network that no one had heard of. Yeah, of course. So you think like, oh, this could be the greatest pilot that no one sees. There's mm. a million of those. Mm. Um, so it was made as a pilot. Mm-hmm. You made one, and then you had, did you have a long wait? A year. A year mm-hmm. waiting to see if it was going to get picked up. Yeah. When you were not allowed to do anything else, or you're no, I was able to do like a thing here and there, and I, I, I always stay busy. Like uh-huh. it's. Uh, Why did they take so long to? Because it was expensive. Mm-hmm. And the partner that they had that made the pilot did not have the funds to stick around as a as an equity partner in the, the run of the series, so they had to go find somebody else. Nobody wanted it. They eventually found Lionsgate, who who picked it up for a song, and it was one of the better investments Lionsgate's ever made. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it was. Um, so after a year, did they minute. remake the pilot, or does the pilot? No, we had the pilot. That's still episode kind of, one. That was that was that was there, and then episode two started about a year later. Of right, right. So we we uh, we just picked up where we left off right. and, on episode one and started episode two just a year later, and everyone was kind of like, "Oh, we're doing this now." Like, I, what did I? What was I doing? I don't remember. It was a long time ago. Yeah, it took a minute to kind of get back into into that world and into that mode. And this is the first time you've been. Number one on the call sheet. This is the first time you're... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you consciously plan how to be? No. I remember day one on the pilot, five o'clock in the morning, something like that. You know, first day, everybody's... No one knows anybody. We're all meeting each other for the first time. It was about a three-page scene with me and John Slattery. It's in, it's in the pilot. I come in after a hard night. He's chirping in my ear about you're late and this and that. And we have this and we have this meeting and this meeting and that meeting. And I've got to, I don't have very many lines, but I've got to take my shirt off, take my tie off, put two Alka-Seltzer in a thing, make sure that's going, take another shirt out of the deal, take it out, put it on, retie my tie. While he's telling me all these things we have to do, miss a button on purpose because the last line is you missed a button. Drink the Alka-Seltzer and be like, I'm ready to go. He goes, you missed a button and then we're out. So there's just, it's all business. Uh-huh. But I remember thinking like, all right, like you got the job, now you have to do the job. Were you scared? A little bit. But then I was like, you know, again, it was like, you got the job. Mm. They're not going to fire you, which I'm sure they could have. <laughs> yeah, that seems uh, that seems rather cocky. But I knew they weren't because, I, first of all, it, it had taken so long to get the job mm-hmm. that I was like, they're in for a penny and for a pound at this point. And I knew I had done all of these scenes basically in, in my various auditions. It was like I had an idea of most of them. And I was pretty off book by that point, by the whole script. Because you'd literally done the whole thing. Because I'd done all of them in, in an audition at some point. Eight times, yeah. And how soon after the show started going out did you realize, oh, this is, this is, people love this? I mean, it was, there was buzz before, before it even aired. And then pretty much out of the gate, it was a phenomenon. Right. Started, Are you getting recognized in Whole Foods straight No, away? it was not that phenomenon. Right. No one saw it. It was just a critical success. Right. So I had a few years where 
you know, every now and again, someone would be like, aren't you on that show? What's it called? What's it called? It's on A&E. Crazy Guys? It's not on, it's not on A&E. It's on AMC. Right, AMC. Because no one had AMC. No one could see it. Right. Um, again, pre-streaming, pre-binging, pre-anything. But it was a critical hit immediately. I mm. won the Golden Globe year one. We won the Golden Globe year one. We won the Emmy year one. Like, it was right out of the box. It was critically successful and written about. And it was right at the, at the cusp of, like, blog culture. So the idea of doing TV recaps and TV blogs and all of these critics were writing about it. And, and not without reason. I mean, it was a dense show. Like, the show was very different in its in its narrative kind of structure. Yeah. It was the first of, you know, I mean, The Sopranos and The Wire were probably the first, but it was one of the first uh, shows that kind of treated a season as one long story arc. Mm. And our first season was 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 uh, captivating, mm. you know, by all accounts. So it was, it was fun. Mm. I mean, that part of it was like, holy shit, we're on a hit. Yeah. Like, I never, never had that experience. And uh, and a, and a show that we can all be proud of, and a show that I'm really proud of, and a show that I'm the lead of, and all of these things that I was like, I'm allowed to be proud of these things. Like it's it's it is good, and I'm I am I am happy with my work in it. You and you're becoming known for playing this rather dark, smooth, inscrutable, untrustworthy guy. Very far from who the real John Hamm yeah. is. Did you feel any? Uh, duty to redress that to let the public know that they, you know, I'm I'm a nice guy. Not really. I mean, I, I mostly I was aware that I didn't want to just keep playing that part because mm-hmm. uh, when people finally started seeing it, and by people I mean people in the industry, then it was like, ooh, play this part. Ooh, play this part. I it's see. a guy in a hat with a cigarette. <laughs> you wear hat. drinks a lot. You know, yeah. Like and has a you know, uh, or it's a guy in the '60s. Like, yeah. You could do that, and I was like, "But I do that four months out of the year. Like, I don't want to do that." See, I have a I have a theory about you that you you're actually rather an old fashioned character actor who happens to exist in the body of an old fashioned leading man. I don't know. That, I don't know about that. And, I, and that the uh, Don Draper, therefore, is a, is a rather it's a beautiful detailed piece of acting. Well, it, that is true. I mean, I, I remember the first time I hosted Saturday Night Live, someone had 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 submitted a sketch at Read Through that that was a Don Draper thing, and I had to kind of put on Don Draper. And uh, Steve Higgins, who's one of the producers, came after Read Through, and he was like, "Oh, he goes, you're you're doing a character when you do Don Draper." I was like, "Well, yeah." He goes, I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought that was just you. I was like, dude, come on. And so, yeah, it's, it's very much a series of choices mm. and, and supported choices and choices that I think about and, 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 and do. And, and I, and I think over the course of 93 episodes or whatever it was, seven seasons, there was a, a lot of opportunity to really explore those choices and explore that character. What did you smoke? I mean, you're all smoking all the time. They're, you know, stage cigarettes, that Those fakey, the, 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 whatever. That stink? It must have <laughs> yeah, been was... the smelliest soundstage. Because those, those herbal cigarettes, they, we, I mean, they're great. They yes. Don't, they don't, they we don't did have a situation where, you know, because the, the offices had 
ceilings. I mean, that was a big part of the the look of the show right, was that right. you know there was that drop ceiling with, and so the air conditioning units in the in the in the in the ceilings were box fans that were when whenever we would cut they would flip those on and I it would see. suck all the, the smoke out into yeah, the yeah, yeah. into the stage so yeah. it wasn't great but it was you got used to it but then you 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 would you might meet people after work who think what are you stinking yeah, you been no, smoking they, they do stink yeah. but yeah you know I also had like 92 pounds of gel in my hair so it was kind of sure. like you know you ruin least, a few pillowcases least of my worries <laughs> It's very much about sexual politics of a of a time, isn't it? Did that? Yeah. Did the sexual politics within the, th- the thing ever have any repercussions in on set? The sexual politics of of, of two thousand eighteen nineteen right now are are wildly different than they were in two thousand six through two thousand fifteen. Yeah, when we were making the show, um, I think it was a fairly well behaved set. I don't. There wasn't at least anything that I saw. There wasn't anything untoward. Obviously, there was. You know. In the narrative of the show, there was stuff that wouldn't fly today or then, or sure, even in the seventies. I mean, there's a scene where you know, an account executive chases a drunkenly chases down a drunk secretary and shows her panties to the whole. Op- I mean, like, mm. hey, oh, like that's that wouldn't fly. Mm. Uh, but you know, then my character's entire way of being wouldn't necessarily fly. But you know, for the for the narrative of the show to kind of whitewash that or or whatever w- dilute that in any way would have been ridiculous. Mm. You know, it would. It, I remember there was pushback early on when we were making the pilot. Like, do they have to smoke? And Matt was like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they absolutely do. Yeah, everyone does, because everyone did. Yeah, if they don't, it would be weird. And the people that didn't smoke are kind of looked at like, "What's wrong with you? Mm. What are you health nut?" Um. So yeah, you know, I mean, it's it, it was addressed by being put in the show unvarnished. Mm. Um, and I think like a lot of the things in the show that the. the the juxtaposition of of seeing that behavior and thinking about it in a in a 21st century workplace or 21st century sensibility was like well i hope we've we've come we've come far or, or at least come some way and then you look at the events of the last couple of years and what's come out and you think like well maybe we haven't well sure yeah but maybe the fact that we're having the debate. At is, least that. Yeah, at least that. At least at least it's been giving credence and, and people are being believed when they're saying like, yeah. yeah, this guy was a creeper. And maybe part of what Mad Men does is by, you know, showing how far the conversation moved on. Uh, it, it might have it might have been an instigation mm-hmm. of, of a lot of that stuff. I don't know. You know, I uh I defend Don in in a lot of ways. I think, you know, he's such a broken he comes from such a broken life that that for him to have become you know remotely as successful as he has in any way, shape, or form, uh, obviously he's going to have some some real issues. But he's a survivor, and uh, you know he has you know tried to make something out of his life, and he's he's uh, in, in many ways succeeded and in many ways failed. But I think that that's about as real a portrayal of a human being as you can. Is like, look, I did some things right and I did some things wrong, mm. and 
you know, my, my marriage wasn't great. It was built on a lie, but I have two great kids, that, three great kids that I love. My job is weird. I don't know how to handle it, but I, but that's what I do, and I do it really well. Um, I, you know, I think that that's, it's that kind of nebulous somewhere on the spectrum of good and bad that I think true, interesting, rich characters come from, whether it's me or Walter White or Tony Soprano or, you know, fill in the blank, mm. what have you. So it, it, it's this huge hit. You start getting nominated for every acting award on the planet. Did, would that feel like an important validation mm-hmm. after all the years of chugging? Sure did. You know, it was nice to be invited to sit at the big table. Mm. Uh, and I would look around and think like, like I'm, I'm in the same group as Jeff Daniels and Brian Cranston and God, Kyle Chandler and Damian Lewis and, you know, fill in the blank. Mm. People that are, whose work I just respect and, and just like enjoy watching and think like, you know, wow, like uh, not only am I in the, in the, in the, in that group, but I'm, I'm the favorite or I'm the whatever. So you think, yeah, cool. This is great. You do seven seasons and by the end of it, you're on Sexiest Man Alive lists and you've got the, all these prizes. You're, you've become something of a household name. Life is very different, uh, yeah. presumably. But after 92 episodes, are you, are you ready? Are you kind of, I can, yeah. I can leave I mean, this now. Yeah. I, I also think just, just where it landed in the narrative of, it felt like the right place to stop. Right. You know, it felt like this is the last page of the novel and we turn it and it says the end. Yeah. And then you close the book and you put it on the shelf and hopefully maybe you read it again in a couple of years and think, oh man, I, I got something different out of it this time. Um, yeah. You know, it felt like it's what I love about British television. It's not open-ended. Right. It yeah. stops. It's yeah. a story. It's a story that has a beginning, middle and end. Um, so you don't get sick of it. There's not that thing of like stick, sticking around at the party too long. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciated that a lot of, of the decision to look when something's making money, everybody wants it to keep going forever. Um, but people don't realize that the reason it's making money is because people like it. And if it goes on forever, people will eventually not like it. Mm. Uh, you can't, you can't tell a story indefinitely. How can we miss you if you won't go away? You know, like that kind of thing. So I think that, that, that idea you know people oh, are you going to do a movie or are you going to do this you know no <laughs> no it's done right it's done it was great it was fun while it lasted but do you grieve for it i did definitely i mean yeah i think you have to mm. it was nine years of my life 2006 sure. to 2015 you know the better part of my all of my 30s essentially 35 well half 30s and half 40s but it was yeah it's a huge chunk of my life and a chunk of like a you know significant part of my sort of maturity and life and adult life and you know that's like kind of the the good years um but yeah it was it was it was wonderful you know it was it was a great job and it was it was a a job that enabled me to get other amazing jobs and meet great people and work with amazing people and, and learn so much. And, uh, uh, yeah, I look back on it very fondly. 
And when it, when I look at the stuff, the the list of stuff you've done since, it it feels a little bit like that. That you, you feel a little bit like someone who's been let loose in a candy store a little, <laughs> a little bit because the the range of things you now seem to choose to do it's it's so varied. Baby driver, and then you do bridesmaids, and then you do absolutely fabulous. You know, there's a you you kind of you seem to enjoy the thrill of the variety. I, I, that's very true, and I think that if you if if there is a through line to all those random th- seemingly random things that I do it's that they're all either with people whose work I really respect right or something that I think will be challenging or scary to do that I haven't done or they look like it'd be totally fun yeah it's did, fun I, it's funny I did a huge day on Ab, Ab, abfab yeah i watched abfab i love uh joanna and jennifer like their approach to that material is so loose and winning and great and serious and they do all the work and stuff but they were they had asked me to be to come in and do a day fly to london do a day on the show and i was like yeah kidding me sounds like a blast and i'm doing a scene with kate moss and yeah you know Gwendolyn Christie's there like there's so many like it's 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 like a circus yeah we were shooting in Wapping <laughs> of all places and across from the stages where we we're shooting there's a pub we all go to the pub for lunch so the, the barman is wiping down the bar it's whatever <laughs> one o'clock in the afternoon there's nobody in this pub yeah and Jennifer Saunders Joanna Lumley Kate Moss Gwendolyn Christie me uh, Lulu, all these people walk into the pub, and the dude is just like, "Wait, what? <laughs> like, is happening here?" Hey, man, how's it going? Yeah, Kate Moss, whatever. <laughs> and we proceed to have like kind of a, a long boozy lunch, and uh, and then go back to work and finish up the day. And I was like, "This, of course, I'll do this. This is a, a blast. It's, it's fun. A, a big motivating factor for you now." It's not the only one, but it's but it's certainly yeah. you know uh, uh, if something looks like it would be just a blast like that, a blast mm. to do, of course. Because you do, you've done a lot of comedy, haven't you? I've done and, my fair share, but I've I've tried to temper it with you know, uh, and it's a specific kind of comedy. Like I, I for example, our thing, Good Omens, I yeah. think is was wildly funny, but it's it's specifically funny. Yeah, it's a little more on the kind of. I don't know, intellectual side of it. I love Neil's writing. I've been a fan of his work for years and years and years. So example, when he said, hey, would you maybe want to do this thing? It's not in the book, but we're writing a thing. I just said, yes, hmm. whatever it is, I'll do it. Does that drive your representatives mad? Because that's yes. not always the Hollywood way, is it? No, they, they, like they go crazy. And... They're just like, oh, you idiot. Like, why do you keep saying yes to this, <laughs> these things? You know, because I, I, cause that's what I want to do. Yeah. Over the course of the last hour or so, and talking to you, you know, flashing back to the time where you didn't have the opportunity to do what you wanted to do or you had to kind of make the opportunity to do what you wanted to do. Like, why would you say no money? Who cares? Like, it's like the, the money part of it is the last consideration, which I'm, I realize I'm in a wildly privileged and a place to, to say that, but yeah, but having got there, why then, then you should be allowed to. uh, Exactly. I feel like that's, that is, that is the, the benefit of removing that stressor. You know, whether it's working with Edgar on Baby Driver, which I knew would be playing a hard, the big bad in yeah. that, really, to working with Charlie Brooker on Black Mirror, uh-huh. playing a much more 
seemingly nice guy that then we realize is not so nice. I've gotten to work with some people in my life. If I could, you know, kind of look back and tell my 14-year-old self, like, you know what? You're going to get to work with Tom Cruise one day, and it's going to be really awesome. Yeah. Which I'm doing right now. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, you're in the sequel... Sequel to Top Gun. Like, there's another example, like... Agents were like, oh, do you really want to do this? I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's the sequel to Top Gun. It's Top Gun. Yes, I do. Wow, the money's not this. I was like, I don't care. I don't care. I it's, just, I want to, I will be good in this. I will have fun on this and it will be Top Gun 2. Yeah. Oh, and and then of course, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. You're reunited with Reunited. Well, I had also worked with pupil. Ellie, with Ellie on uh, Bridesmaids. Of course you had. Yeah. Yes, of course she you was, uh, she was on Bridesmaids with me and yeah. so, and she was also on The Office which I was not on, but, but the office was sort of in the Emmy swirl and the Golden Globe swirl when we were so... As you were on that circuit we had, together, right? We had a lot of red carpet moments, and I just remember one point or another, we were kind of next in line to each other on the big step right. and repeat line. Yeah. And I remember looking over at her and being like, <laughs> hi! Because the last time I had seen her was when she was a kid. I was very chuffed, as they would say. You seem very at ease with where you are. Do you get angry and resentful? Do you get? Do you kind of have moments going, how does that actor get that part? Less and less. Right. I think as I get older and more experienced and more, have more of a perspective on everything, I realize like it's wasted energy. Mm. It's really waste and, and it's, and it's not, it's non-productive and I think it's actually harmful to motivate yourself in that way. Why? Why that guy? Why that guy? I always say, why not me? Mm. You know, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm good enough. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, Stuart Smalley, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh, darn it. People like me, but also there's so much of this business that you just, you don't have any concept of, of what's going on behind the curtain. And if you did, you'd kind of, I think you'd rather not know because the, how the sausage is made is kind of gross in, in certain, certain things. And you think like, Oh, well, that guy got that because of this and that. And, so many other things and agencies representing other people and horse trading and all that nonsense that goes on, especially at the studio level. Mm. Oh, this guy is mean. This guy means this much money foreign and this guy means this much money in this place. And you'll drive yourself crazy thinking that way. And again, I realize like I'm in an incredibly privileged position to, to, to even have that perspicacity to sort of remove myself from that worry. But I, I've tried to be less and less uh, judgmental about all that stuff the longer I've been around. It's like, all right, good for you. Good for you. I'm happy for you. And I, and I work, I, I, I'm, I'm the first guy to, as you well know, I'm the first guy to recommend somebody for a part where I'm like, oh, you know who'd be great for this? David Tennant. So where do you want to be in 10 years' time? What what would be... I don't know. You know, happy, stable. You know, it's it's more kind of uh, generalized adjectives than anything. You know, I can't be, oh, I want a franchise and I want a this and I want a that. And yeah. Stuff I don't need. It's more intellectual and emotional satisfaction, I think, that I'm looking for. And, uh, and that's a fun pursuit, too. John, thank you. Cheers, mate.
David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced and edited by James Deacon. Additional production from Chris Skinner, Steve Ackerman, Sarah Camlett, Josh Gibbs, Dave King, Jake Valentine, Joel Freeman, Magda Saron and Georgia Tennant. Next time. It was so embarrassing. My first big interview, foreign affairs, talking to the world, and I got the country wrong. <laughs> Just incredible. Uh, and I'll never forget that. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful, and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps.